If you have your Bibles with you, join me in opening to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. And Genesis is easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. In chapter 3, the chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I don't know if it's possible to imagine a world without sin. I don't know if it's possible. I think trying to ask us, us people who live in a world that has been corrupted by sin, that has been ravaged by the fall, I think to ask us to imagine a world without sin is not only unfair, but it's also impossible. It's like asking a fish to imagine what life would be like on a dry ground. Or like asking, maybe cruelly asking, a young blind boy to describe to you what the blue sky looks like on a warm summer day. It might be asking, like asking someone who's only ever lived in a 2D world to explain to you what it looks like to live in 3D. It's impossible. But C.S. Lewis tried to imagine such a world in his novel Paralandra, which was the second book out of his space trilogy. Lewis did his absolute best to imagine, in order to help us create in our mind's eye, what life must have been like for Adam and Eve in a world that's untainted by sin. You see, in this, in this novel, there were two men, these two astronauts, who went out to Venus and the planet Venus, and when they got there, what they found was something like the Garden of Eden. Venus was very much like the world would have been like here on planet Earth prior to the fall of Genesis chapter 3. He did an excellent job. And yet, as you read about this pre-fall world with a man named King and a woman named Queen who ride dolphins around and have no knowledge of sin, you can't help but escape the fact that something just doesn't click. It's obvious that a person is doing their best to imagine a world like this who's never really experienced it themselves. Thankfully, we are not left up to our imagination. We can know what a world prior to the fall was like, at least in part. And Lewis, in Paralandra, does his absolute best. He's at his best describing what that might have been like or imagining what that might have been like when he doesn't try to conjure up images from his own mind, but rather when he taps into the deep wellspring of Scripture, which tells of such a world. So what was it like? Well, we know that in the beginning God created everything. We know that everything that God created was good because God is a perfectly good God. We know that God calls the work of his hands good seven times in the first chapter of Genesis in the account of creation. We see man, the final point of God's creation. First, God separates the light from the darkness. He separates the dry land from the waters. He creates vegetation life, and then he creates animal life. And then finally, at the apex of his, created, of his, creati- of his creative deeds, he creates man. It's the apex of the creation. And God is like an artist. Every time he creates something, he steps back, observes it, and he says, and it's good. But after he creates man, he doesn't merely say that it's good. He says that it's very good. And at the inception of creation, we see a good God already putting his love on display for us as he places us in the garden. I think we can see that in five different ways. God has not left humans to fend for themselves. When God creates Adam and Eve, he places them in a garden where they have all the provision that they'll ever need. The second way is that God did not leave humans to their own devices and curiosity. God put them in a garden with a tree that they should not eat of, and he didn't let them figure that out the hard way. He graciously told them, do not eat of this tree. God also gave the man work in chapter 2, verse 15. 
says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. For many of us, this is the part about pre-fall world, about the pre-fall world that's hardest to imagine. A world where work is something that is always good and always to be delighted in, rather than having your alarm clock slam you back into reality yet again so that you put on your boots and trudge off to a job that you don't enjoy. God gives man companionship. You see that God gave man marriage. It's not good that man is alone, so he gives man a wife, Eve. The husband is supposed to love his wife, serve his wife, lay down his wife for his life, and the wife is supposed to submit and be the helpmate to the husband. God gave man communion with himself, often walking with him in the garden. And so basically what we see is that as the Bible opens, the good God who creates the entire world and creates man is putting his love on display in vivid technicolor for those who are willing to read and understand. He's given them every sort of physical and spiritual provision that they could ever want or need. Sometimes we think about God like this. 10,000 no's and one yes. We think that God gives us 10,000 arbitrary rules that are just don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and then you can do this, yes, but only under certain conditions. The exact opposite is true as we see the, the pages of our Bible opening up and as we see the story of creation. We see that God actually gave us 10,000 yeses. Here's the garden. Eat of all the trees. The 10 million trees, except for one. Here's a wife, husband, wife, delight in each other. Procreate, produce. Enjoy my good creation, love me. But then everything went wrong. We went from perfect peace to utter destruction in the blink of an eye. One pastor says it like this. We went from walking with God in the presence of his glory to being shut out of his presence. From the bliss of marriage to the struggle for authority. From the perfect health of sinless bodies to the corrupted flesh that brings cancer and heart disease and bronchitis, which is striking our congregation down like a plague this week. From good work in a good garden to I hate my job and I would never go back again another day if I could afford not to. Well, let's read about this fall together in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of it. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. There is a whole lot that can be drawn from the wellspring of today's scripture. A lot. But I want us to notice three, three things. But those three things are all bound up with one thing. So here's the one thing. In Genesis chapter 3, I think we see a pattern for every single way that human beings in their sin react when they come into contact with a holy and righteous God. So this is how sinners respond when they come into contact with a holy and righteous God. And they do that in three different ways. Way number one, they blame God. They blame God. In verse 11, God asks, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So before we get to the part where Adam blames God, we should notice first that Adam does what all of us do. He has an evasion tactic. Because Adam is not answering the question that God asks when he gives his response. You see, God asks, who told you that you were naked? And then he asks, have you eaten of the tree? And Adam's response to that is, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Well, you see, God didn't ask who gave you the fruit. It's kind of like when I go in the room and I find out that Patience has drawn on the wall with a crayon, and I say, baby, who drew on the wall with a crayon? And she says, Bella got water on her bed. Well, that may be true, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not relevant for the question that I asked you. I think we're all guilty of that. But from evasion, even in the evasion, we see that Adam is blaming God. Brothers and sisters, you should know that there is no blaming God for our sin. You see, Adam says, it's not my fault, it's, it's the woman that you gave me. So not only is he throwing his wife under the bus, but he's also throwing God under the bus. You gave me this woman, God, and if you wouldn't have given me this woman, this never would have happened in the first place. And in blaming God, for his sin, he's taking the blessing of God in a wife and calling it a curse. God saw that it was good, it was not good that Adam was alone. And so to bless him, he gave him a wife. But when he sins, he calls God's blessing a curse. And brothers and sisters, we are all guilty of blaming God in our sin. And we usually do it by calling what he's blessed us with a curse. Oftentimes that comes in the form of blaming our circumstances on God. But you should know that we are not victims of our circumstance. We say things like, God, why did you allow me to be abused? If you never would have allowed me to be abused by my father or my mother 
or if you would have never allowed me to get involved in that relationship, if you never would have placed me in this household, or if you never would have given me this learning disorder, or if you, if you wouldn't have made me with this personality, or if you wouldn't have given me the skin color that you've given me, or allowed me to be born where I was born, or speak the language that I speak, then maybe everything in my life would be different, and I wouldn't have sinned against you the way that I have. Uh, I loved Scooby-Doo when I was growing up. There were certain cartoons that when you're flipping through, you just stop on. And Scooby-Doo was always one that I would just stop on. And I never knew as I was watching it as a child that what it was really teaching me to do was to cast blame on others. Because in Scooby-Doo, the villain always gets caught. And when they, when, when they unmask the villain, he always says, if it wouldn't have been for those daggone kids. Actually, I don't think that's what it says. Something like that. Pretty close. You know, I remember one episode where there was a ghost haunting the laboratory, right? And they finally caught the ghost, and when they, in, and they interrogated the ghost afterwards, he said, yeah, I was a research scientist, I was doing good research, but they took away all my money, and if they wouldn't have take away, taken away my money to do this research, I never would have gotten so desperate, I never would have gotten to the point where I felt like I had to do this in the first place. And then he says, if it wasn't for those kids, pulling an Adam. Adam blames his wife, blames God. The ghost blames the kids, blames the laboratory, blames everybody else other than his own sinful heart. Brothers and sisters, how often when we are confronted with our sins do we deflect blame to other people? Example, I wouldn't have cheated on my wife if she would have been more affectionate to me. I work 60 hours a week to put food on the table. I'm giving up my entire life to make sure that you and these kids are provided for, to make sure that our children can go to college, to make sure that you never have to say the words I want. I grind my fingers to the bone, and I come home and I get nothing from you. You're cold, you're distant. I don't get a kiss, I don't get a hug. When the lights go off, I don't get anything else. So says the husband. You see, it's not his fault that he cheated on his wife. It's the wife's fault. I wouldn't have cheated on my taxes if Uncle Sam wouldn't have been so greedy, taxing me to death. And then around here, we start to say those daggone Democrats. You see, it's, it's never our fault. It's always society's fault. It's the education system's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's our ancestors' fault. And some of that may be true to some extent. We do live in history, and if a person throws a rock in the pond of history, we do have to deal with the reverberations that go out from that splash in the water. But you should know that you have to give an account for your sin. And when we give an account to God for our sins, there will be no victims in heaven's court. Not only are we not the victims, but husbands, fathers, you should know that in some sense you are going to have to give an account for those sins that you have not committed. You notice that when God approaches the family in the garden after the sin has taken place, he doesn't go to Eve, he goes to Adam. I remember when I was in the army, if there was an issue that was petty, it didn't matter, the first sergeant would never come to me as a low-ranking soldier and say, Demars, why didn't the motor pool get clean? Demars, why didn't the, the weapon get cleaned properly? He would go to my sergeant. Because the sergeant had the privilege and the responsibility of authority and leadership. And if something didn't go well, the first sergeant would go to the sergeant fathers, husbands. In the same way, if something's not going well in our home, God, when he comes knocking on our door, is going to say, what's wrong? What have you not been doing right? And so in that sense, we are giving an account for our sins. We just don't realize that in this covenantal system of family that God has given us, the sins of the other people in our family, in our lives, may very well be the result of some failure on our part to lead and love our family well.
When God asks Adam, Adam blames Eve. And then right after that, God asks Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. It's blame shifting. Where did Eve learn that? Well, she just saw her husband do it. And now it's been role modeled for her, and she follows her husband's lead. So parents, fathers, husbands, consider this. The way that you lead your family will be reflected in the behavior of your children. If you've been a parent longer than five minutes, you already know that. One of the hardest things about being a parent is that you see the worst attributes of yourself being expressed in your children's lives. If you're impatient, they tend to be impatient. If you grumble and groan, they tend to grumble and groan. My daughter, Patience, has a habit of going, ugh, when she gets frustrated. And she does that because her mom does it whenever she gets frustrated. That's the way it works to be a parent. Our children watch us and then they imitate us. And husbands, our wives take cues from us as we lead our families. So how are we leading our families? Are we being quick to repent? Are we being quick to recognize our errors? Are we inviting criticism and critique into our lives? And if we are criticized or critiqued, are we quick to deflect the blame like our father Adam? If we are, I'm sure that that's going to be evidenced in the life of our family. But if we lead the way in repenting and forgiving and being patient and kind and gentle and exercising all the fruits of the Spirit in our homes, we will see that reflected in our family. Notice the contrast between the way that Adam responded to God and his sin and the way that Christ responded to God and his righteousness. You see, Adam refused to accept the blame for his sins. But Christ took the punishment for sins that he didn't even commit. Adam tried to preserve himself once he was found out by a holy God. He tried to do whatever he could to preserve his own safety, his own whatever. But Christ didn't try to preserve himself. He poured himself out for us. Adam perverted the truth. But Christ is the truth. And he came telling us the truth about our sin and God and his holiness. And he didn't teach us to blame shift. He called on us to repent and to trust in him who's already taken the it's one of the beauties of the gospel, brothers and sisters. We don't have to blame shift. We don't have to deflect blame. The truth of the gospel is that you're a sinner. Everybody knows it. Quit trying to hide it. You look dumb when you do. And not only that, but the blame's already been taken. Christ took the blame for you on the cross. So now you're free to admit to your sin. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to have to take that blame. If you belong to Christ, he's already taken it. So stop partnering with Satan and lying about your sin and deflecting your sin and blaming others for your sin. Quit being like your father Adam. Be like your father Jesus Christ. All that God demands of us in order that he take that blame is that we believe in him and what he's told us about our sin and the means to reconcile us back to himself. Point number two, when sinful man comes into contact with a holy God, he hides himself. He hides himself. Look at verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We would do well first to consider how stupid Adam and Eve are. Now, if we read our Bibles the way that people maybe read their Bibles a hundred years ago, we would not simply read a verse and kind of meditate on that verse and make it the life verse for the day and then try to do it. We would probably read like an entire chapter or maybe even, this is getting crazy, so stick with me, an entire book at a time. And if you were used to reading Genesis like that, you would recognize the progression. 
It's like a symphony that's slowly building up to a grand crescendo. There's nothing, and then God speaks, and He creates everything. And then He separates water and dry land, and then light from darkness. And then He starts creating more and more, and He creates one level of life. And then He creates a higher level of life. And then finally, everything in the symphony comes together for a masterful ending as He creates man, the crowning jewel of His creation. And if you read it like that, you'll see that it's pretty obvious that God created the world and everything in it. God created the garden, and God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. So how dumb is it of Adam and Eve to try to hide from God in the world that he created, in the garden that he created, and in the garden that he placed them in? I remember when I was nine or ten, I used a knife to cut something in the kitchen, and I didn't wash it. My mom, being the neat freak that she was, came in and asked who used the knife. I have no idea. Sean, who used the knife? I swear, I have no idea who used the knife. And she looked at me, now that I'm a parent, I realize, kind of assessing how to move forward, how soon the beatings would commence. And she asked me again, and again, and again. In my ignorance, I couldn't see the fact that she knew that there was no other person in the whole world who could have used that knife and left it dirty on the counter. In my stupidity, I denied it. And that's what Adam does here. That's what Eve does here. They try to hide from God in the world that he created. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Sinful man always hides his face from God. Even Moses, the mighty prophet, the savior of the Israelites. In Exodus 3, we read this. God is encountering Moses and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see, there's a reason why we hide. We know that we're sinful. Even if we can't articulate it. We know that God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And we know, even if we can't articulate it, even if we're trying to deny it, even if our conscience has been seared down to the point where we think it can never be revived again, every single sinner who was created in the image of God knows that when they come into contact with a holy and righteous God, a verdict will be rendered against his soul. And so we hide from we hide from God's holiness. We hide from His righteousness because we know that His holiness and His righteousness demands that we be punished for our sins. And if you don't know that, brother and sister, I don't know that you know the gospel. If you think that you're a basically good person and that God will let you into heaven because you're basically a good guy or a good girl and you do anything for anybody, take the shirt off your back, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel says that you have fallen infinitely short of the glory of God. And that requires that his righteous wrath rain down on you and on me unless we find a righteousness from outside of ourselves. Unless we find some way to fix this sin problem. There are different ways of hiding from God. Sometimes I see teenagers walking around with earbuds in their ears 24-7. They just never don't have one. And now it's accompanied with a tablet or a phone, too. When I see that, I think, I think there may be some aspect of that of maybe they just really, really love music. But more than anything, what I see is a person who is trying to, with their own sensory input, block out everything else that is crashing down on their heads. They want to just hide. They, they want to hide from their parents. They want to hide from school. They want to hide from the pressures of life. 
So they just try to shut out. They try to shut everything out with this stimulus. It's like the illustration of a young child who says that he hates the sun and he wants it to disappear. And so he closes his eyes as tight as he possibly can until everything is black and there's no more light that comes in and his eyes cannot perceive any of it. And he says, the sun is gone. The sun is dead. Until he opens up his eyes again. And the sun hasn't gone anywhere at all. We can try to hide from God. Like Adam. But we'll always be found out. Another way that we can hide from God is by being religious and good. The story of the prodigal son is all about the older son who thinks that he's right with God because he stays at home and obeys his father. But really, he just has a different kind of unrighteousness. An unrighteousness that hides itself in religious garb. An unrighteousness that hides itself in righteousness, in, in man's righteousness, and what the world deems to be righteous. This church can be a place where people can hide from God. Have you considered that? This is a place where people can come, they can write their checks, put them in the boxes at the doors, put them in the plate as they pass by. They can wear good, decent clothing. They can be polite, have good social relationships. They can read, they can pray. They'll probably serve in some sort of ministry. And they'll think that they're okay with God. But what they're doing is they're hiding behind their own forms of righteousness. So as elders, we need to ask ourselves, how do we prevent people from hiding from God in the life of this church? And I think one of the main ways is that we just don't let this church be a social club. We don't let this be a place where people can come and live comfortably without having to talk about sin, without having to deal with that, without ever having to have times of confession and transparency and repentance, where we think and speak and talk and live out everything that Jesus said as if it were really true, as if it was really binding on our lives. We don't pray like carnal people pray. <clears throat> we value prayer. We value singing. We value praise. We value confession. We value the preaching and teaching of God's Word, so much so that we raise the temperature of this church, Sunday, Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, one-on-one -on -one conversations that we have with each other in our homes. We raise the spiritual temperature of this church so much that the goats get too hot. That those who haven't been converted by Christ, those who don't love the things that Christ loves, and those who don't hate the things that Christ hates, they just don't want to be here anymore. And for the sheep, they begin to get cozy in the warmth of the spiritual church. They start appreciating the heat. They start loving it. And they start growing in it. We have to do something with the temperature in this church so that neutrality is not an option. Like it is in so many. And like perhaps it was in this church for so long. We should be very afraid of getting what we want from God. You see, Adam and Eve hid from God and they wanted to stay hidden. But God did not allow them to stay hidden. And thank God that he didn't, because he gave them grace, even in his judgment. Brothers and sisters, when we hide from God, and one of the ways that we hide from God is by hiding from each other, keeping our sins secret and hidden. When we hide from God, may God never let us stay hidden. Sin lives in the darkness like mold. But when it is exposed to the light, it is put to death. And one of the reasons why we do so much work as elders in our elders meeting with prayer and membership stuff is because we don't want to let members live in the darkness. One of the reasons why if we don't see you here two Sunday mornings in a row, we're going to call you is because we don't want you to live in the darkness. One of the reasons if we start seeing your attitude change or some per issue come up in your life, it's not because we want to be mean to you. It's because we don't want to let you live in the darkness. In your sin, you want to live in the darkness. You want to be hidden from God. But because we love you, we're not going to let that happen. <clears throat> Think about all the times that you wanted something. You really thought you needed something. You thought you just had to have it. And then you didn't get it, and you said, thank 
God. Literally, thank you, God, that you did not give me that thing which I so desired. I couldn't see then what I see now, how stupid it was of me to desire that gift. I, I just couldn't see. I was too immature. I was too blinded by my sin. I hadn't had enough experience. I was so unwise. And then five years later, ten years later, sometimes maybe some of us haven't even realized some of those things yet. But we realize, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you didn't give me what I wanted. Hell is a place where we get what we want. In our sin, we want to hide from God. We want to be away from the presence of his glory. And in hell, that's exactly what we get. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 reads, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of his might. And on the cross, Christ was separated from that glory. In the Apostles' Creed, it says, He descended into hell. And that's a clause that Christians like to argue over. I don't think we should. Because in hell, we know that that's where people are separated from the glory of God forever. And on, on the cross, Christ was separated from the glory of God in a very real way. You don't have to be separated from the glory of God. You don't have to remain out of the presence of his glory forever because Christ was separated from his glory on your behalf. You see, Adam fled from the presence of the Father, but God would not let him stay hidden. Christ, who deserved nothing but to be with the Father that he has shared the glory with for all of eternity, says John 17, he was cut off from the Father's presence. And God allowed him to do that so that we might be in the presence of God forever. Adam fled from God's wrath. But Jesus ran towards it. How might you be fleeing from God this morning? How might you be trying to hide from God in your life? What sin are you not wanting to expose to the light? And have you considered the consequences of not exposing that sin? You may feel like the consequences that you experience for exposing your sin are going to be more than you can bear. But I promise you, hidden sin will hurt you more than you know. So stop fearing man. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Fear God and expose your sin in the life of this church. And you should know that this is a very difficult thing for a pastor to preach. Pastors don't like preaching this because whenever they say, stop hiding your sin, that means members stop hiding their sin. And then we have to love you and serve you. We get the pleasure of loving and serving you and helping you work through that sin, which is very difficult and hard. I don't see any other option for me or for you. Have you considered the two paths before you? The path of Adam or the path of Christ? I would encourage you to imitate Christians everywhere who hide themselves in Christ in order to escape the wrath of God. Number three, we try to be God. Let's read verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I don't know if you've ever talked to anyone who has a religion of self. As a Christian, it's, it's, it's pretty jarring when you meet someone who says, I think I'm my own savior. I think I have control over my destiny. I'm the master of my own faith. I can handle it. But will God allow us to manage our own sins? Is God content to allow us to cover up our own shame? I don't think he is. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You see, God is not content for Adam and Eve to fix their own sin problem. 
He's not content for them to clean up their own mess. This whole, you made your bed, now you have to lie in it line, does not apply to us in our sin and how we can be made right with God. I think there are two reasons why God will not allow us to fix our own sin problem. Reason number one, we simply can't do it. We just cannot do it. We can't cover up our unrighteousness with our own righteousness. A dead heart cannot conjure up life within itself. An unrighteous person cannot conjure up righteousness from within themselves. We can't, we can't do enough good deeds because such things don't exist apart from faith in Christ. Consider Philippians, which we've been studying together on Wednesday nights, when Paul talks about his pre-conversion experience. He had every single advantage in the world to be able to have his own righteousness. He was of the tribe of Israel, specifically of the advantaged tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He spent his whole life studying God's word. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when it came to obedience to the law, he says he is blameless. And then a couple verses later, he says, I need a righteousness that's not my own. I need a righteousness from outside of myself. Every single thing that I can do is worthless in God's sight. I need an alien righteousness. Consider again the stupidity of Adam and Eve. They made fig leaf underwear for themselves. God says, the way that you try to fix your problem is not going to work. It's just not going to work. How long would fig leaf underwear have lasted Adam and Eve? Well, not very long. But God comes along and gives them clothes made of skin. And that's a much better fare. And here we already, again, we see evidences of God's grace. We see, we see a picture of the gospel because, you know what, in order for that skin to be given to Adam to cover their nakedness and to hide their shame, an animal had to die. In order for our unrighteousness to be covered, in order for us to have an offering made for our shame, someone has to die. And for us, thank God, it was Jesus Christ. I wonder if you realize how silly you look sometimes trying to fix your own problems, trying to solve your own issues, trying to conjure up your own righteousness. I know how dumb I look. My wife knows. Anybody who's known me long enough knows Whenever I try to fix things on my own, whether it's a door handle or my own unrighteousness, I end up looking silly. And I don't even have to do it. That's the thing. I don't have to have righteousness in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. So why do I, why do you, why do we keep on looking for life in the wrong places? Why do we keep coming up with inadequate solutions for our lives? Why not just trust the solution that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ? Why don't we just repent and trust in the offering that he's given us? The second reason why I think that God will not allow us to cover up our own sin is this. God wants the glory. God wants the glory. Any person who has any part in covering up their own shame, in covering up their own sin, in fixing their own issues with God, and somehow, some way, gets some of the glory. We try to have our own righteousness, and God says, No, I'm going to fix this situation. So that when we're in eternity together, you're not going to say, Yeah, God, me and you, we teamed up and we crushed it. Appreciate the help, big guy. We're just going to fall on our faces and we're going to worship and we're going to praise God and we're going to say, every single solution that I could have possibly come, come, could have conjured, conjured up in my sin would have been 
entirely, infinitely inadequate to fix my own sin problem. But you, God, you made a way. All of my righteousness is refuse, but your righteousness is perfect. And who gets the glory when we talk like that? God does. But if I say thanks, God, for helping me with my unrighteousness problem, I get some of the glory. And God is a glory monger. And it is right that it is so, because he deserves every last drop of it in the universe. In Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 6 and 12, we see that the reason why God the Father elects, predestines, and adopts, the reason why the Son comes and redeems and purchases us and justifies us, and the reason why the Spirit regenerates us and sanctifies us and seals us for the, for the day of redemption, the reason why the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are doing everything that we could ever possibly need to get to heaven is for this. So that we might praise the glory of His grace. So that we might praise the glory of His grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift, the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all throughout the Bible, brothers and sisters. Paul is not kind of inventing some new theology when he talks about God being a God who's not going to allow anyone to boast. In the first three chapters of your Bible, you see a God who says, you can't fix this. Don't try to fix this. I'm not going to let you get any glory from fixing this. I'm going to be glorified, and I'm going to be the one to fix this from top to bottom. I'm going to kill the animal. I'm going to take the skin. I'm going to make clothes and garments for you that your righteousness will be my righteousness and that your shame will be covered, and I will be glorified in my deeds. In the story of the prodigal son, what does the father do when his son comes home? He gives him his robe. Adam tried to put on his own robe his own spotless robe, but his hands were covered with blood. And when he realized that he couldn't wipe the crimson stains off of himself, but Christ willingly accepted the scarlet robe for us. It's as if Christ was a man walking around in a $10,000 Armani coat. And he's walking through the city and he walks past a man who's homeless, a vagabond, clothes and tatters, jacket so decrepit that it basically just is barely hanging on to him by a thread. And he says, hey, give me that jacket. You give me that jacket, I'll give you mine. It's the beauty of the gospel. And we have absolutely no hope without it. Adam tried to put on his own righteousness. But Christ became sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Revelation 7, 9, a picture of heaven. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palms and branches in their hands. Chapter 3 ends in more grace. See, there's two trees in the garden. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and one is the tree of eternal life. And no human being may partake of both trees. So as Adam and Eve partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are removed from the presence of the second tree. That second tree is that which gives life everlasting. God loves them enough to save them from a horror that they could not even begin to understand. That would be life here, eternally, in a corrupted state. 
But for those of us who haven't repented and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, that is what awaits us. An eternity of suffering in a corrupted state where we will have full understanding of God and his righteousness and his holiness and his love for us. And we will be separated from the presence of his glory. What about you? When you come into contact with a holy God, how do you respond? How are you responding right now in the life of this church? Are you blaming God for the sins that are going on in your life, in your marriage, in your family, at work? Are you blaming your family, your friends, society, statistics? Are you hiding from God? Worst of all, are you trying to be God? I know that you are. Because I know that I am. Because I know that I'm a sinner. But the gospel tells me more than that. It tells me that I have the ability to stop doing these things. So when I blame my wife for a sin that I commit in my home, I have the ability to say, baby, I love you and I'm sorry and I was wrong and then to accept that responsibility for myself. When I hide from God, I have brothers and sisters who love me and who joyfully and sometimes maybe under much tension call me out of the darkness and pull me into the light so that my sins may be exposed and so that I might grow in the likeness and image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when I try to play God, God is kind to just shut me down. And oftentimes he does it through you, brothers and sisters. As I observe your life and I see ways that you're holy, that I'm not holy, as I see ways that you're knowledgeable, that I'm not knowledgeable, patient, that I'm not patient, kind, that I'm not kind, serving in a way that I never could aspire to, sometimes it's hard to be a pastor because you serve people and you're expected to lead people who have, in so many ways, so much more of Christ in them than you do sometimes. Brothers and sisters, we as a church have to be committed to not hiding from one another and not hiding from God, not blaming one another and not blaming God, and not trying to be God in the life of this church. Rather, but rather rightly seeing each other and recognizing our fallen yet redeemed state and asking God to be the God of this church, asking Christ to be Lord of us all. And by his grace, I think we may be able to do it. Let's pray. Father, your grace and your mercy knows no end. We all, like Adam, deserve your wrath but you've given us more. You've given us mercy. And Father, we pray that you would help us in the life of this church to be imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ and not imitators of our Father Adam. We ask this in his name. Amen.